Happy Lord's Day to you. I am happy to be standing up here looking at you, and the reason why that is true is because I love you. And I'm happy to be doing what I'm doing right now, and that is because I love the Word of God. I love to preach and to proclaim the Word of God. I hope that you were listening and paying attention as Jackson was reading that text. One little phrase in there that I want you to pay attention to, it's going to be in large part our concentration today, and that is that we make it our aim to please the Lord. Um, let me explain what is going to happen today. I'm going to be preaching a sermon from the Bible. What is the Bible? Well, the Bible is a book. Uh, it is made up of 66 smaller books. It's divided into two main portions, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books. We are studying one of those New Testament books. It is the book of Hebrews. We are in the last chapter, and today we're going to be studying just one of those verses. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read two verses, and then we are going to look at one of those verses, and then for a long time I'm going to explain that one verse, and then very quickly at the end I'm going to give you five points of application. The verse that we're going to be studying is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21, the verses that I'm going to read are Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. If you would, please turn to that passage, stand and listen as I read the word of God. Hear the word of the Lord. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we are praying with great confidence and assurance right now that if we are to be equipped and if we are to be doing those things which are pleasing to you, then, Lord, you must work that in our hearts. For, Lord, we confess that left to ourselves, Lord, we would not be desiring to do your will, but Lord, we would want to do our own will. I would ask God, please, in the name of Jesus, by the power of your spirit, that you would change us to want to do your will. And then, Lord, through the preaching of the word, I would ask, Lord, please, that you would equip us to do that. And then, Lord, may we leave this place and do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The point of the Bible is Jesus. The point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything in Judaism. And the point of Hebrews chapter 13 is that we are to be doers of the word. Last week, we looked at one half of this benediction. And you remember what a benediction is. It simply means good words. Uh, there are many benedictions in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, we looked at the benediction found in Hebrews chapter 13, 20, and 21. And last week, we only covered half of it. That is verse 20. And that is the portion where we are looking at who it is that is being prayed to. And who is it? Well, it is the God of peace. And what did he do? Well, he brought from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Who is the great shepherd of the sheep? It is Jesus. Why is he the great shepherd of the sheep? Well, because he laid down his life for the sheep. 
God brought him back to life. And how did he do it? He did it through the blood of the eternal covenant. That's as far as we got last week. And if we are to break this entire benediction down into a three-point outline, each point beginning with the letter G, last week we looked at God, and then this week we are looking at growth and glory. So we move on now to the second G, and that is growth or spiritual growth. The God that is being prayed to is a big God, and we're asking him to bring about spiritual growth. Before we get to this notion of spiritual growth, I want to say a few prefatory remarks. First of all, you need to remember uh, that there is a forest here. We are going to be looking pretty much at just one tree or maybe one branch or a twig or a leaf on the end of a branch on a tree. In other words, we are going to get into the minutiae of a verse here, but let's get the big picture in mind. Let's remember that there is a forest, and the forest is the gospel, that we have been saved because God has loved us and sent Christ to die for us. We have accepted Christ, and now we're making our journey through life, and as we're making our journey through life, we need to grow spiritually. This is a prayer. It is a prayer that we will grow spiritually. But as I get into the verse and I start to take the verse apart, sometimes just one word at a time, you might lose track of the fact that we are actually in a big forest known as salvation. And it is God showing his mercy to us and then equipping us through the gospel to grow spiritually, uh, that that that's the big forest. But but we're gonna we're gonna walk in and we're just kind of gonna be looking at one tree. Another thing that you need to remember is that this is a prayer. He is not telling these people to be holy. He's not commanding or even suggesting that they be holy. In fact, he is not talking to these people at all. He's giving them no encouragement whatsoever. He is not even speaking to them. He is speaking to God. This is a prayer. It is good that you be told that you need to be holy, but this is not a passage where you are told to be holy. This is a passage where God is being addressed and being asked to make the people holy. The other thing that you need to remember before we get into this aspect of growth is that the God to whom this prayer is addressed is a big God. He is the God that we talked about for an hour last week. He is the God of peace. He is the one who, through the blood of the eternal covenant, raised the great shepherd of the sheep from the dead. And so, as you are thinking about what is being asked here of this God, you need to remember who this God is. And so, with that sentence structure, that that God is the one doing the work in us, and he is being prayed to and asked to do that work, we now move into the subject of spiritual growth. May God equip you with everything good. Let's study the word equip. How can this word equip be better understood or otherwise translated? Well, the word literally means to mend or to fix or to fashion or to make complete. So, for example, when Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee and he saw Peter and, I'm sorry, when he saw James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and they had their nets and their nets were tangled, what were they doing with those nets? They were mending their nets. That same word mend uh, has the same Greek root as this word to equip. Uh, we're reading this in English, uh, but the people who read this initially were reading it in Greek, and 
the book of Hebrews twice previously has this word, which we translate equip, in the text earlier. For example, it appeared back in chapter 11, verse 3. Look back in chapter 11, verse 3, in reference to faith as it is our helper in understanding the creation. It says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That word created there is the same exact Greek word as the one used in 1321, translated there as equip. Now, why would these words be similar, or what is a sense in which they would be connected? Well, uh, the word created or framed, as it says in the King James Version, means that things were out of order and they were put back into order. Remember what it says in Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void. In other words, it was chaotic. There is a contrast between cosmos, that is the world which God created with order, and chaos, which was the condition of the world as God spoke it into existence. He put everything in order. In other words, he framed it. He equipped it. So in the same way, in 1321... God is the one who puts us in order. We have these messed up lives, and he equips us to do his will. There's another usage of this same Greek word, and it is back in chapter 10, verse 5. Turn back to that verse. It is a part of a quote from Psalm 40, where it talks about what God did for Christ in giving him a body so that he could die for our sins. Here's the word as it appears in 10.5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he, that is Christ, said, sacrifices, and he is speaking to God the Father, and he says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared. That is the word, prepared. It's the same exact word as equipped, a body that you have prepared for me. And why was that body prepared for or given to Christ? Well, reading on in verse 6, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have, you take, you have taken no pleasure. But then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, which is the same phraseology which is used in 1321, doing the will, will of God. He has a body so that he can come and do God's will. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. I hope you understand what I'm trying to convey at this time. We're reading it in English. These words are translated different. We don't see it. The first people that read this, they're reading it in Greek. When they're reading it in Greek and they get to chapter 10, verse 5, they're going to read this word, which is translated equip, and it is going to be that a body has been prepared for Christ. They're going to keep reading. They're going to get to chapter 11, and they're going to see in verse 3 that God created or framed or fitted the universe. And then they're going to get to chapter 13, our verse for today, verse 21, and they're going to see that same word, and there it is translated equipped. And what does it mean? Putting it all together it is to take that which is chaotic and to move it around so that it is useful. It is to equip. That is what is being done, and God is the one that is doing it. Now, please understand that there is a sense in which we have already been equipped Uh, as Christians, to do the will of God. 
It says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, you already got what you need in order to be godliness, godly and to live the Christian life. It says in Colossians 2.10, in the New King James Version, that you are complete in him. Complete is complete, and it's not going to get any better. So that there is a sense in which every Christian is already equipped. Uh, you are already joined to Christ. That That's not going to improve. It is as perfect as it possibly can get. You are already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That too is a benefit which is not going to improve. It is already perfect. You already have a Bible. The Bible is not going to get better. God is not going to equip you with a better Bible. You have a perfect Bible right now. There's a sense in which you are already complete. However, there is another sense in which we continually need to be equipped, and that is known as progressive sanctification or growing in grace. And the reason that this is continually needed is because we live in a fallen world and we are fallen people. And our positional standing, although it never changes and it is always perfect, our actual standing and our actual working out of our Christian lives in the day-to-day world is always in a state of flux. And because of spiritual entropy, otherwise known as indwelling sin, it is always moving in a chaotic direction. It is always spiraling down. So what do we do? We need someone to move in and to equip us so that we are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need the equipment. We need the equipment to be fixed. We need the equipment to be given to us. Every year on Memorial Day, I gather our interns at my house in my yard, and we spend the entire day cleaning out my shed and cleaning everything up. And I do this for two reasons. Number one, it's free labor. I get to get my yard clean. Number two, I do it so that I can watch them and see if they know how to work. That's going to help me. A few years ago, uh, there was one of the interns who was trying very hard to be helpful, and there was some debris, and so rather than getting a broom and a dustpan, the intern decided to take my blower and to blow the debris away, which is a good idea. Blow it out onto the clear view. Very inconvenient living on the clear view. We just blow our trash out onto the clear view, and the cars sweep it away. It's the best place in the world to live, but you need a blower to move it along quickly, and so... The intern has the blower, and he's pulling, and he's pulling and pulling, and it won't start, it won't start, it won't start. And I said, well, this is curious, this is strange. And so I looked at it, and I said, it's filled with gas. Um, What gas did you use? And when I bought the blower, I was preached a sermon by the people at Garden World, never put gasoline into this. You always put the gas oil mix into it. Otherwise, you have to throw the thing away. It's shot. And, and, I, and I said, what gas did you use? And he takes me over to the red gas can where I had written in a black Sharpie pen on the gas can, never put in blower. He said, this one, hmm, what does that say? We're going to get along swell. Look at this. Okay. And it is, I thought, okay, it's shot. There was another intern that was there that day and who said, I know a little bit about engines. I think I can give this thing a look. Maybe let me look at it. About an hour later, vroom, 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 vroom. it's working and it is blowing the debris away. We are equipped. What happened? He equipped me 
with the power to do the work. In the same way, we have put something far worse than straight gasoline into our tank. We're taking the world into our tank. We, by nature, in our experience, are not equipped to do the work. But what does God do? Well, this author says you pray to God and you ask him to equip you to do the work. He takes that which is twisted. And what is that equipment? Well, the text does not say what the equipment is. I'm going to take a guess. I would say that the tools or the equipment that God gives are, are first of all, a desire to do the will of God. That is something that he gives us that we don't want in and of ourselves. I think he also gives us conviction from the Holy Spirit when we do something wrong. Uh, He gives us the word which directs us. He gives us prayer so that we can commune with him. He gives us the church so that we can encourage one another. He gives us good Christian books so that we can be instructed. And most importantly, he gives us the gospel because the gospel is of first importance. And everything that we do in the Christian life has to be informed by the gospel. All of these things are the things that he gives us. I think that's what it's talking about. But you might be saying, Pastor Ed, you are just guessing. And I would say, you're right. I am just guessing. The text does not say what that equipment is. So let's just for a moment say that I am wrong because I am often wrong. And this equipment is something else. Here's what I will tell you with great assurance. Regardless of what this equipment is, let's say that I don't know what it is. Will you not grant me that there is someone who does know what the proper equipment is? And when we pray to him and we say, will you, Lord, please give the equipment that is needed in order for us to do your will, whether nothing that I said on that list is actually the equipment that is needed and it is something altogether different, do you, A, not believe that God knows what that equipment is, and B, that he has the power and the authority to give it. He knows. So just pray to him and ask him to equip you. Costa is sitting in the back. He is an expert plumber. Uh, We at our house uh, find very creative ways to mess up our plumbing. And so as a gracious friend, he will come over from time to time or he will send someone over to fix what we mess up in our pipes. You know, never once has he ever called and said, we're going to come tomorrow. And I have never said to him, so you're coming tomorrow. You got your plunger? Yeah. How about your wrench? Do you have your wrench? Yeah. How about your... soldering thing. Do you have that? Have you got, have they got, have you got that? Yeah. It's like, why are you asking me all these questions? Because I need to know that you know that you have the right equipment. It's like, no, I never ask him that. Why? I don't have to ask him that because I trust him that he knows what equipment is right. In the same way, when we are praying to God saying, please equip the saints, He knows exactly what equipment is needed, and I would guess it would be a little bit different for each person, and it would be given in his time in a different way. So as we are praying for one another to be equipped, please know that God knows what he is doing. Let's take a commercial break, and let's talk now about the phrase, the will of God. And this is where we will momentarily wax theological. 
You see the phrase there in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21, the will of God. Equip you with everything that you may do his will. What does the phrase will of God mean? Well, God has a desire to see something happen. That is his will. But for our purpose today, we need to distinguish between the decreative will of God or the decreed will of God and his prescribed will. They are two different things. Let me explain. The decreative will of God is what he has determined will happen. And this includes everything, and there are no exceptions. It says in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Do you know what that means? That means that from the beginning, he declared or determined what the end would be. Or, as the Westminster Confession says, he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And so, if you get a raise at your job, God has decreed that. If you get fired, he has decreed that. If your body gets healed, God has decreed that. If you die, God has decreed that. God has decreed that countless people would be saved, and they were saved during the First Great Awakening in the 1740s through the ministry of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. But he also decreed that Adolf Hitler would kill countless innocent people. There is nothing that is not included in the decreative will of God. It isn't just that he knows what's going to happen, but he has determined what is going to happen, and he does all things well. It will surely come to pass, that is the decreative will of God. Everything is under his control. Daniel 4.35 All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God does exactly what he wants to do. That is his decreative will. His decreative will is not what is being referred to in Hebrews 13.21. What is being referred to in Hebrews 13.21 is his prescribed will. What is a prescribed will? Well, think about a doctor that writes a prescription. God has written a prescription. The doctor writes a prescription as to what meds you are supposed to take. God writes a prescription. It is known as the Bible, or more specifically, his commands that are within the Bible. He inspires holy men to write out what you are supposed to do. That's what you are commanded to do. That is his prescribed will. And in Hebrews 13, 21, the author is praying that his audience will be equipped by God to obey God's prescribed will. In other words, that they will obey his word. Now, please note that God's prescribed will does not always come to pass. In fact, any time that anybody ever sins, the prescribed will of God is not coming to pass. And that is why we are instructed to pray, thy will be done. In other words, God, please step in and see to it that people will obey you. So you see the difference between the decreative will of God and the prescribed will of God. And in Hebrews 13, 21, the prayer is that his people will be equipped or have the ability to do his prescribed will. In other words, do what he says. I hope that you're tracking with me so far. Now let me remind you, for the second time, this is a prayer. He is not saying that you should live a holy life, although you should live a holy life. It's not what he's saying at all. 
he is praying to God and asking God to equip you so that you will live a holy life. Which brings us to the next phrase in 21, verse 21, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Working, that's a participle ending in ing, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. The word working implies that this is a process. It is not a position. It is not a standing. It is not a state. It is a process, and it happens over time. For some people, it happens more rapidly than others. Does it not blow your mind? Is it not mind-boggling to you that Keith Allen has been saved for less than a decade? That's crazy. That's just crazy that someone would grow that much, that fast. There are others, uh, they are growing, but the growth is a lot more slow. Well, God is the one that is working or causing the growth to happen. Now, as we consider God working in us to make us more holy, please understand what this does not mean. It is not referring to the Keswick theology of let go and let God. Sort of just like God is just carrying us around, and if I become holy, well, it's because God has taken me to that holy place. Now, there is an active role that we have in our sanctification. Turn back, please, to the book of Philippians and look in chapter 2 and verse 12. Here's where it speaks about our active role in our own growth in godliness. Therefore, Paul writes, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, uh, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, what is the command? You Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There is something for you to do. You have an active role in this. You are to work it out. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 1.10. Make your calling and election sure. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And even in this book of Hebrews, these people have been told one chapter earlier, in chapter 12, verse 14, to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, if you are not pursuing holiness, you ain't going to be in heaven. So you better strive for holiness. There is an active role that we have in our sanctification. Spiritual growth. So if I walk up to you and I say, how's your walk with the Lord? And you say, well, it's not where I want it to be. You know what? According to Scripture, it is exactly where you want it to be. I think the thing is, you might be content to follow at a distance, but, but you are exactly where you want to be. James 4, 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So there is a sense in which our sanctification is, is, is our work, and we actively pursue holiness. However, there is a truth which underlies that. There is a truth which supports that. There is an undergirding of our pursuit of holiness, and it is the work of God in us. It's kind of like with salvation. You have a role in this. Like you are commanded to repent and to believe 
If you do not repent and believe, you will not be saved. But listen to me, you cannot repent and you cannot believe unless it is given to you. Repentance is something that is granted. Faith is a gift from God. You have to repent and believe. If you don't repent and believe, you're going to go to hell. But that faith and that repentance is given to you by God. In the same way, you are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but there is something undergirding that, and what is it? It is that God is working in you, and that is the prayer that he will work in you, equip you, so that you will do what is pleasing in his sight. Now we go back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. I'm going to read it again, but then I'm going to read verse 13 right after, because verse 13 supports verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, here's what you're supposed to do. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, the only reason that you are going to pursue holiness is because God is at work in your heart in the willing that is changing your desires and the doing that is carrying it out. And that is why it is important to pray to God that he work in people's heart that they become holy. Many times I've told you the testimony of my aunt, my mother's sister. Uh, I will briefly recount it for those who have not heard the story. Uh, my aunt uh, was, uh, she was a horrible woman. She was a, she was a drunk. In fact, she was the town drunk. Uh, recently, I um, had a conversation with my cousin. Uh, he's 84 years old. I was talking with him at the end of March. And he was telling me of when he was, he was, uh, in college back in the 1950s and he was walking down the street of my little hometown and he, there was a bar and the bar door was open and he heard a, 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 a sloppy drunk cackling woman just, just making a fool out of herself in that bar. Uh, that was my mother's sister. That was my aunt. She wasn't just a drunk. She was the town drunk. And, and as he, he said, he told me this just back in March. He said, I walked past that bar and, and uh, there was a, there was our aunt in there, just, just sloppy drunk all over the place. In fact, my father wouldn't even acknowledge that he was related to her. Uh, she was such a mess. Then it happens in 1959 that she gets drunk and falls down a flight of stairs and she breaks her neck and she's in a hospital bed and she is alone with the Lord and she cries out to God and God radically saves her. That's in 1959. I am not born until 1961. So, the so by the time I am born, she is already a passionate Christian. And she was the most godly person that I ever knew, completely on fire for Jesus Christ. And I often wondered, why was she the way that she was? I mean, there are Christians, and then there are Christians. And she really loved Christ. I think in part, she was so on fire for Christ because she knew the pit that Jesus dragged her out of, and she never forgot it, and she was always thankful. But the other reason why she was the way that she was is because her heart was changed and she was equipped 
to do the will of God, and God was working in her that which was pleasing in her sight. You see, there are people that get saved, and praise God, they get saved. But those people that really get saved and remember what Jesus did, it is not a matter of reason where someone sat down with her and said, you know what? Sin will make you sad and, and holiness will make you happy. Therefore, go in the direction of holiness and it was reasonable. It, it, it wasn't some sort of a, a psychological trick that was played on her mind. It wasn't a, a, a sociological move from drunkenness to uprightness. No, what it was from beginning to end was this. God equipped her to love himself and God was working in her that which was pleasing to himself, and she was radically in love with Jesus Christ. So the scripture reading happens. I sit here, I wait for the scripture reading to end, and they read the scripture, and then they say, this is the word of God, and then everybody says, thanks be to God, and I stand up here, and I open this book and a notebook like this, and for about an hour, I stand in front of you and I say, Jesus is glorious, and sin is horrible, and you must trust in Jesus, and sin will make you sad, and you need to pursue holiness, and very politely, you sit there and you listen, you nod, you take notes, and, 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 and I believe that you genuinely believe what I'm saying and you want to do what the will of God is. But do you know why it actually translates into life? It is not because I stand here and because I have convincing rhetoric or because I repeat it so many times or because I'm so passionate when I say it. The actual ability to walk out of this room and to do the will of God, that is to obey Him, and to have something working in you where you just have this heart of desire and passion to love Jesus and serve Him, it only comes about when God Himself works in you. Because by nature, you are only interested in you. And by nature, you are only interested in this life and this world. The change in one's heart comes when God begins to work in that person's heart. And so that is why I must remind you repeatedly in this sermon, this is not a command for you to do anything at all. This is a prayer to God saying, oh God, will you please change the hearts of these people? That is what this text is referring to. And how does it happen? We'll notice back in Hebrews 13, 21. It happens the same way that everything else happens. It is through Christ. Equip you with everything that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. The gospel is of first importance. It, it, it is through the mediatorial work of Christ that we can even have a relationship with God. And it is through the work of Christ that we actually grow in grace. As you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive Jesus as Lord? You did it through the gospel. How is it that you grow in Him? It is through the gospel. The gospel is of first importance. And Jesus said in John fifteen six, 
without me or apart from me, you can do nothing. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. A man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from above. It is through Jesus and through Jesus only. Listen to this prayer I came across this week in the Valley of Vision. Remember, I referred a few weeks ago to the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers. I recommend that you get it and that you meditate upon these prayers. Listen to a portion of this Valley of Vision prayer entitled, Need of Jesus. It's rather lengthy, so it will require you to employ your powers of concentration, but here's what it says. I am blind, be thou my light. Ignorant, be thou my wisdom. Self-willed, be thou my mind. Open my ear to grasp quickly the Spirit's voice and delightfully run after his beckoning hand. Melt my conscience that no hardness remain. Make it alive to evil's slightest touch. In other words, when there is the slightest little smidgen of evil coming in, Lord, make me aware of it and help me to run away as fast as I can. When Satan approaches, may I flee to thy wounds and there cease to tremble at all alarms. Oh, that I may love thee as thou lovest me, that I may walk worthy of thee, my Lord, that I may reflect the image of heaven's firstborn Jesus. May I always see the beauty with the clear eye of faith and feel the power of thy spirit in my heart. Here's the part that I want you to see most. For Unless he moves mightily in me, no inward fire will be kindled. And I repeat, for unless he moves mightily in me, no inward fire will be kindled. End prayer. Oh God, please, for these your dear sheep, light a fire in their hearts, light a fire in my heart. We're completely dependent upon God, the Holy Spirit, to give us the desire to do His will and the ability to do His will. Working what is pleasing in His sight, 2 Corinthians 5.9, we make it our aim to please Him. But it's kind of ironic that God gives us what we need so that we will turn around and use it to please him. Which brings us to our third G word, and that is glory. Glory. Uh, look at it. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What I'm about to give you is an analogy, and I know that this analogy breaks down on many levels, but I think that you will get the idea. Several years ago, my mother-in-law called me and she said, Ed, please do not buy my daughter another appliance for Mother's Day this year. You see, for years, for Mother's Day, I would buy Anna something like a vacuum cleaner. <clears throat> now, what was I doing? I was equipping her 
to do my will so that I might be pleased. But that is what God does. He is giving us equipment so that we will use it to do his will so that he will be pleased. He, according to Ephesians 1.11, is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And what is it that he ultimately wants? Well, what he ultimately wants is glory. Please listen to me and look at me. God is not egotistical. God is not selfish. God is not an egomaniac. God desires glory because God is worthy of glory. And for God to desire anything other than glory because of his worthiness for glory, it would make God a a liar and a deceiver. Him wanting glory for himself is simply him wanting the truth and wanting things as they should be because he is worthy. It says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And so the reason why God saved us although it gives us a lot of benefits and it's pretty nice to be saved and going to heaven and not going to hell, but he doesn't primarily save us for us. He primarily saves us for himself. Did you catch that? God saved you for himself. Ephesians chapter one, at the end of verse four, it says in love and then taking that into verse five, it says he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why did you do it, Lord? Why did you do it? Why did you save us? Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, he did it so that his grace would be praised. He gave us a vacuum cleaner so that we would use it to please him. He equipped us to please him. And in so doing, that is our ultimate joy and our ultimate happiness. But the bottom line is that this is for him and through him, through the mediatorial work of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And so to him be glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let me remind you once again, I'm not asking you to do anything. I hope you don't think that I've asked you to do anything today. If I have asked you to do anything, it is a misrepresentation of the text and a slip of the tongue. I'm not asking you to do a thing. All I'm telling you is this guy is praying for those people that they will be equipped by God to do God's will and that God will be working in us so that we will be pleasing to him. This is a sermon about a prayer. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be holy. I'm just saying the text isn't saying that. So, what now should we do in light of this? Five points of application. Here they are. They are quick and they are very similar. Number one, pray this prayer for one fellow Christian who is struggling or growing slowly in the Lord. So your marriage is a mess. I mean, you don't bring it to church, but it's a mess. And and you and your spouse, they're not getting along. And you've done everything that you can to try to perpetuate spiritual growth in your spouse. And, and it, it just isn't working. Well, may I suggest, please, that you begin on a daily basis 
perhaps even many times a day, to earnestly go before God and say, Lord, it is my deepest desire that my husband or my wife would be walking with you, and so I'm going to ask you, God, to do what you alone can do, and would you please, Lord, equip them so that they will do your will, and would you be working in them so that they will desire to and will actually do what is pleasing to you. Lord, I want to be married to someone who is on fire for you, and I can't make them be on fire for you, but God, I know you can, and I am going to tenaciously pray that you will do that. I think it's going to work better than nagging. I I think it will work better than nagging, but not just for your spouse, but for that person in the church who frustrates you. It's like, why aren't they growing? Well, they're, they're not growing because they're, they're like you. They're a sinner. How can they grow? They can grow if God begins to work in their heart. In fact, I would even go so far as to say, maybe you ought to pray this prayer for the Christian that you like the least. Uh, I know you love them, but there is, you know that Christian out there that you just don't like, and probably they don't like you, so it's mutual, but but maybe what you should do, rather than to complain about that person, is to pray that they would be on fire for the Lord. Number two, will you please pray this for your pastors? This is a selfish request, but not really, because if you have happy pastors and happy elders, you're going to be a happier church. There is great room for you to criticize what I do and what we do. Whatever you say about me, which is derogatory, the only thing that I can tell you for sure is that I am actually worse than what you say I am. I understand that there is plenty of room for justifiable criticism. We elders are not perfect. We know that. Would you please pray for us that God would equip us so that we would do his will. Because if we aren't doing his will, we can't say to you, follow me as I follow Christ. Would you pray for us that God would be working in us that which is pleasing to him? And and as you pray that, guess what? Sermons are going to get better. Not going to get shorter, but they're going to get better. And, 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 And the leadership is going to get better. We need your prayers. Please pray for us. Number three, pray this for yourself. Frustrated about the stagnation in your sanctification? God, will you please equip me with everything that I need to do your will? And Lord, will you be working in me, Lord, that which is pleasing to yourself? Lord, I stand in need of prayer. Pray for yourself. Uh, Number four, changing gears slightly. Give glory when someone points out any aspect of godliness in your life. Someone comes to you and says, oh, you are such a kind person. Well, thank you. Glory be to God because I, by nature, am not kind. I am only kind because the grace of God is at work in me. You see, the text says that this is to be done for the glory of God, right? So when you get praised, don't take the praise. Deflect it immediately to God. And then finally... Closely related, give glory to God when you see growth in a fellow believer. You see someone progressing in sanctification, it's good that you go up to that person and you give them encouragement and you tell them to press on. But you know what is even more important than that? That you go to God and say, I 
see you at work. God, your fingerprints are all over this person. You are the one that is working in them. And so I'm going to praise you. And the reason why I'm going to praise you is because the reason that you did it in the first place is so that you would be praised and you would receive glory. I just want you to know, God, it is really evident that you're doing a great job in this person. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Father in heaven, we left to ourselves, are very content with stagnation, Lord, with compromise, Lord, with sin, Lord, following at a distance, very content to be lukewarm. We, Lord, left to ourselves, are nothing. We are sinners. Lord, by your gospel, you have saved us. Lord, you have indwelt us by your spirit. Now, Lord, I want you to please, for thy glory, to change us. For thy glory, Lord, to, to equip us thoroughly to do your will. And Lord, be working continuously, tenaciously, not letting us go, Lord. Working in us, Lord, please, so that we might do what is pleasing in your sight. And Lord, we will be very careful and diligent all the while to thank you for doing this work and to praise you for doing it through Christ and to give you glory forever and ever. Amen. And so be it. Amen.